0: He who saves one life saves the world entire, and the most important life to save is your own. After all, it's the place where you have the most power. So join shadow worker and trauma therapist Laura Giles each week on It's Not You, It's Me. We'll uncover what's in shadow and learn the things you need so you can heal yourself, grow yourself, know yourself love yourself be yourself and share yourself if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired it's time to drop the self-sabotage and limiting beliefs a healthy abundant connected life is an option choose it subscribe and let's start manifesting it
1: A listener asked me to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer and the meaning of evil. And at first, it may seem like that has nothing to do with letting go, but it actually does. For me, letting go is about getting to zero, or being in the hub of the wheel. At zero, you owe nothing. you owed nothing. You're both masculine and feminine. You're all things and nothing, so you're your most authentic and whole self. And evil's an extreme So when we hold on, things can get extreme, and when we let go, there are no extremes. I'll break that down in a moment, but before we get into today's topic, I just want to give a disclaimer. I'm an animist. That means I believe all things are energetic, conscious, and connected. So my views on Jeffrey Dahmer and the meaning of evil reflect that. Feel free to take what works for you and release the rest. So apparently there is a TV miniseries that's either on now or recently aired about Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't have TV, so I haven't seen it, but I have seen my friend Dahmer, the movie, and read books about Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes, including Killing for Company. And so trigger warning for anyone who doesn't know who he is. He's a murderer who did some pretty gruesome things. And I'm not going to get into the details of the crime, but the topic is unpleasant, so... There's my trigger warning. So let's talk about the nature of evil. Is there such a thing? In my opinion, there is no good or bad in nature. Everything just is the lion doesn't have guilt for killing an antelope. He has to eat. Mushrooms don't feel bad for decomposing dead trees. They just do it. When someone is cutting grass, grass lets out chemicals that tells other grass that danger is around and that fresh mown grass smell might be construed as a fear signal. Now, grass can't hide or move, so there isn't a lot they can do about it, but some animals do react to signals like that. Nature wants to survive. So both species have ways to send danger signals to each other so they can protect themselves. Humans do too. We're a part of nature. The difference between us and other organisms is culture. Culture decides what's acceptable and where we draw the line. In some cultures, it's perfectly correct to cut off the heads of your enemies. The reasons vary. In some cases, it was done for psychological warfare, so you're psyching them out. In others, it is to steal their spiritual essence and power because the power is said to reside in the head. Sometimes it was done to keep them from resting in the afterlife or reincarnating and returning to wreak revenge, so practical, right? So there is a mythology around the practice that made sense to people with these practices. In modern Western society, we see that as barbaric and frown on anyone who would ever do such a thing. For us, it's evil. For them, it's not. It's fair play, I guess. So evil is cultural. One of the biggest perpetrators of evil by modern standards was the Catholic Church. The Inquisition not only killed people, but they tortured far more. I don't think this church set out to be evil, they thought they were doing the right thing. So I'm not defending it, I'm just explaining it. We can see there is wickedness in the world, right? But how does it get here and what's the purpose? That's the question behind the question that the listener asked me. In my view, everything is a reflection of us. We're the creators of our reality, as within, so without. So if we look around and see drive-by shootings, homelessness, drugs, human trafficking, and serial killers, it's a reflection of us and our society. To me, that's a giant signal to look inside and clean up what's inside, because I'm a part of all of this. I may not be shooting at anybody or cursing anybody out, but how am I helping anyone? What am I consuming? Is that helping or hurting? If I eat frankenfood and watch TV that glorifies violence and objectifies women, I'm contributing to a culture of convenience and cheap thrills. I'm sustaining a culture of objectification. And this is really important because when Jeffrey Dahmer was asked about how things got to the point where he was killing and eating people, he said, it's a process, it doesn't happen overnight when you depersonalize another person and view them just as an object, an object for pleasure and not a living, breathing human being. It seems to make it easier to do things you shouldn't do. Yikes, right? We're all doing that every day right now. Dating apps are a huge example of how we depersonalize people and we treat them like a menu where we can just order up what we want and pass on the things we don't. That's not dating. Dating is taking time to get to know somebody by spending time talking and sharing ourselves. When we run companies based on data, we aren't caring about employees. I totally understand and support productivity. A business has to make money to stay in business and a person should do a good job if they're being paid. But I have a lot of clients who work for companies who routinely fire the lowest performers. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're slacking It could mean that they were not well-trained, have been sick, or needed some help. Or maybe they're just with a really superior team. But in this kind of environment, they're just a number. And they're always in danger of being fired, and that's a horrible way to live. In the United States, 17,000 people a year are enticed or forced into human trafficking. This means that they are performing forced labor or sexual acts, often without pay and living in squalor. We can't do that to each other if there were no people willing to subjugate others and willing to employ them. That's us, you guys. We're doing that to each other by treating each other as objects. In some cases, we're seeing ourselves as objects. If somebody catcalls me and I blame myself, I'm objectifying myself. I don't see myself as human. If I'm a slave to my job and work, 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 I may see my value in terms of what I produce or my job title, and that's objectification. If I'm looking for someone to complete me and be my soulmate, I might be objectifying myself. It's a way of saying, I'm nothing without you. But if I'm addicted to my appearance and have to go to the gym, I could be objectifying myself by overly identifying with looks and my body. Same with lots of plastic surgery. And I say this to give us all a heads up on how we contribute to this, kind of like a a reality check, you know, self-check. Another thing that Jeffrey Dahmer said was, the subtleties of social life were beyond my grasp. When children liked me, I didn't know why, nor could I formulate a plan for winning their affection. I simply didn't know how to do these things. Um, And try as I might, I couldn't make other people seem less strange and unknowable. I resonate with that a lot. When I was a kid, I was super shy. I wasn't low on confidence. I just never knew what people were thinking or how they might respond to me. I was objectified. I was bullied because I was different. I looked different. I was culturally different. I was academically different. I get that. That's what kids do. But when kids and adults were all over me telling me how cute I was, I felt like an object or a doll and that doesn't feel good. I felt very unseen, and I wondered what people wanted from me, honestly. It was really weird. And how often do we do this to other people? So I'm this kitty was always on the sides of the room watching and not participating, unless I was with friends. I take a long time to warm up to the crowd because I wanted to know if I was going to be safe there. I wasn't treated like an object at home. Socializing outside of home or with strangers was not comfortable at all. I never knew what people wanted or how they might act because there are so many people out there who objectify others and see them as a resource or just have so such poor boundaries that they're just not safe to be around. And as a little kid, I knew this, but there are so many people out there who today who don't get it. Now in Jeffrey Dahmer's case, his mother was mentally ill and his father was as socially clueless as he was. And this doesn't mean he had to end up the way he did. Dahmer was actually normal um, and, you know, just happy until he was four years old. Then something happened and things were different. But can you imagine how things might have been different if he had learned healthy boundaries, socialization skills, and emotional intelligence? Look at his face. You can see the trauma on his face. Anyone with a flat affect like that is at least depressed, if not traumatized. He could have and should have gotten some help. Instead, he was treated like a circus attraction as a child and laughed at. People didn't make sense to me until I took a psychology class. That's when it clicked. I minored in sociology, and that gave me a perspective of how people move within the environment. Now, it was kind of weird, but not in a deviant way. But had it not been for that, I would have felt as clueless as Jeffrey Dahmer. People lie. Their actions don't match their emotions. Their emotions are all over the place. So how is a child supposed to figure that out? It just doesn't make sense. Another thing that Jeffrey Dahmer said when talking about his motivation was it was not a case of hating them. It was just the only way that I knew of to keep them there, to keep them with me. So he was lonely. His killing spree started when his mother left him alone in the house just after graduation. He's 18, newly graduated, there's no furniture in the house, nobody's there. He's adrift, and he didn't have any way of making any connections, and we all need connection. Humans are social creatures, even the introverted ones. We need each other, and the only way he knew how to assure that he would have company was to drug people and then kill them. I know it's an extreme and horrible thing to do, but everything we do is motivated by a desire. When we don't have the skills to get what we need in a healthy way, we go with what we know. When someone hits their child, it's their way of venting frustration and trying to find some control. When someone steals something, it's a way to feel powerful and in control, and sometimes because they don't know how to provide for themselves. You know, narcissists love bomb people to seduce them and appear attractive to them. And they do this to feel loved by someone that they feel is important because they get status through affiliation. It ends up going horribly wrong, but the motivation behind it is actually sweet. They're lonely and want to connect. When it comes down to it, all hurtful things have several things in common. Well, two, fear and ignorance. I'm afraid of being exposed, unloved, abandoned, or something like that. And I don't know how to change this or what would I do if it happens? That's pretty much the root of all negativity. Do companies need to defile the environment with pollution? Absolutely not. But wealth is power. And what would they do if they didn't have that power? They'd have to trust that someone with more power won't come along and do the things they don't like. This is why governments... Act the way they do with a war and all. We're all in this life together and ultimately that is the only way to win the game. It's working together and trusting that you're not going to get stabbed in the back for cooperating. If you've ever played the game Prisoner's Dilemma, you know what I mean. There's two teams and a moderator and the goal is to get the most points. So there's five rounds of play, There's lots of variations to this game, but the gist of it is that in each round, each team chooses red or black, or something that represents the same kind of idea. And the teams cannot talk to each other. If both teams choose black, they both get three points. If both teams choose red, they both lose five points. If one chooses red and the other chooses black, the one who chooses red gets five points, and the one who chooses black loses five points. I've played this game and also facilitated it so others can play. What happens every time is that a vote for black is a vote to cooperate. A vote for red is either a gamble that I can take advantage of your goodness and win over you, or that I will get to take a stab at you. <laughs> and the first, team, uh, the first time a team is on the losing end of going black, they tend to stop going with black. So the game ends with both teams in the negative. So negative points for both sides. Since the objective is to finish the game with the most points, both teams lose. Because it doesn't say more points than the opposing team. The objective is to get the most points. So if we work together, you get 10 points, I get 10 points. We have the most points. We have, at least we have points. (laughs) So the only way to win is to work together and trust. So things like Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes become possible because we don't work together. We don't see each other, love each other, support each other, or even know ourselves. We're too wrapped up in hiding from our fears and coping the best way we can. And coping is not healing. Until we do the work of healing, the load just gets heavier. But zooming out, the darkness that we all call evil happens because it's part of the natural process. There is no creation without destruction. The coin has two sides. There's always a yin and a yang. We cannot stop hurricanes and death. We can accept it. We cannot take it personally. And we cannot let it upset our own rhythm and balance. You see, you're everything and everything is you. And there's a great Cherokee story that illustrates this. A grandfather tells his grandson that a great fight is going on within him. There are two wolves battling it out to the death. One is goodness, light, truth, kindness, love, peace, generosity, and harmony. The other is death, destruction, sorrow, regret, guilt, resentment, lies, and inferiority. The grandson is alarmed by this, and after a moment, he asks his grandfather, which one will win? His grandfather says, the one that I feed. Everyone has challenges, What we make of them is up to us. Nobody has to let a traumatic childhood turn him into a monster. Oprah Winfrey was molested by a child or a family member and had a baby at 14. Charlize Theron saw her mother shoot and kill her father in a domestic violence act of self-defense. Benjamin Franklin had to drop out of school at age 10 because there was no money for him to continue. So everybody's got stuff. It's not a reason to stop living give up on trying, or let yourself slide into the dark. But if you do, don't get discouraged. The Wheel of Life says the excessive yang turns to yin. What that means is that things can only get so bad before they turn good again. It's like a pendulum that's always in motion. If you look at the Taiji sign, and that's the yin and the yang, it's a symbol of wholeness. If you cut the circle in the middle anywhere, there's always gonna be some light and some dark. It never goes completely out. And that seed is enough to nurture anyone back to life. That's just the nature of life. I've worked with people who didn't think they had any light in them, but we go inside and see it. Even then they think that they can't keep that little light burning. And as we do the work of healing, it becomes easier and easier to see. And one day they know inside that it's there all the time. And as they know this, the outside changes to reflect it. It really is inside all of us. And it's up to you to find this and know this because only you can do your own work. Yes, it helps to have someone who cares and sees the light inside of you when you don't. It helps to have a cheerleader. But there isn't enough love in the world to make you change if you're not willing. I've seen lots of people get burned that way, trying to love their sons, daughters, or spouses into being happier, healthier people. I've never seen that work. We have to be able to stand on our own two feet because darkness is always within us too. Tornadoes come. It's part of the plan, but there's something else too in indigenous cultures that help us to understand the randomness, the shocking sudden changes and the things that are hard to understand like Jeffrey Dahmer. That's trickster energy. Tricksters are in every indigenous culture. Loki is the trickster god of north mythology. He's a chaos god. You don't want him showing up. You want him to stay away. (laughs) That's the nature of something tricky. They make things right by destroying them. Or they give you something by taking something away. Or they just do things that don't make sense. He's not a bad guy because he usually doesn't intentionally harm anyone. He's charming but mischievous. Loki's also a hermaphrodite. He fathers most of his children but gives birth to one of them. When he turns himself into a horse, he gives birth to an eight-legged horse. That's the type of energy that comes along with trickster. Not so glamorous or desirable, is it? (laughs) So yeah, not a lot of indigenous people sign up for that life, unless you're Iktomi, who is vain. So Iktomi is a Lakota Spider-Man trickster. And one day Iktomi was looking at his reflection in a pond and he couldn't tear himself away. He just thought he was so amazingly beautiful. So the next day, he decided what better way to spend the day than to do the same thing. So he went to the pond, but this time, something was different. This time, he wasn't so lovely. He gazed and gazed, but the distorted face didn't change. He left frustrated and decided to get some food, then go back to his den. But before he got there, he stopped at the pond once more to take another look. This time, he only saw a dark blob, no eyes, no nose, and no mouth. Frightened, he ran home, wondering whose reflection that he saw, because it certainly wasn't his. The next day, he was angry because he thought the pond must surely be playing tricks on him. He decided to go back and saw Rabbit on the way. Confused and wanting someone to talk to, he told Rabbit all about his encounters and asked him what he thought. Rabbit pondered for a moment and said he thought Iktomi's reflections were indeed his own, but they were changed by the sun, wind, and rain. Iktomi replied, Which of those reflections is me? Rabbit said. There is no choice but to believe them all, no matter how good, strange, or disordered they seem to be. Sensing that Iktomi was not satisfied, Rabbit added, if you don't know who you are, then it doesn't matter what you believe. So you see, sometimes the trickster tricks, and sometimes he's tricked, but either way, there is always the opportunity for wisdom in the end. That's really his function. He either blows things up, so they can be rebuilt or rebirthed. He tells the truth that no one else will tell. He does something foolish that makes us all laugh. Or he does something foolish that we can all learn from. Are you familiar with Anansi, the spider, or beer rabbit? They're tricksters. Coyote is a Native American trickster. The hare is a Celtic trickster. Fox is a Japanese trickster. Bugs Bunny is an American trickster. So tricksters are liminal creatures. They go between this world and the other world. They maintain communications between earthly beings and the heavenly ones, and their teachers. In the Anansi stories, Anansi started out life as a man, and his father turned him into a spider. He was part of the folklore as a teacher. I see everything as a teacher, but particularly tricky, extreme things like Jeffrey Dahmer. Everything in the universe makes sense. And it's sometimes tricky logic, but it all makes sense. It's like when people ask God, why did you let six-year-old Bobby die? You know, life's not fair. It's not always kind. I'm not sure where we got this idea that it was supposed to be happy, love-filled, and goodness and light, or even that that's the ideal. Life is brutal. Without all the brutality, we couldn't see the goodness and appreciate the love. That's the whole point of having a human existence, to have it all. The purpose of evil is to create balance. Extreme evil ushers in a growing of peace and love. It has to, because that's how the world works. Look to nature. Going back to the prisoner's dilemma, if you know this, it's easier to trust, to play the black card, and be cooperative. It's easier to keep your heart open when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and broke. It's easier to keep going and not go down that self-destructive, selfish path that will only end up hurting you and other people too. There really is no way to hurt other people without harming yourself. Sometimes we're aware of that and sometimes we aren't. But even when we aren't, the universal laws still apply. We're never going to eliminate vulnerability. There isn't enough money or muscles or beauty in the world to make us safe. Living is inherently dangerous. We all die in the end. And even if we plan incredibly well and do all the right things, the possibility that Trickster will come along and blow it all up is real. So my strategy is to do what I can and let go of the rest. I accept the way of the world works and don't expect it to be different. Doing so is a recipe for disappointment. That's like saying, I hope I don't get old. The only way that that'll happen is if I die first. So I encourage people to work with the universal laws. And since you know that you are everything light and dark, stand in the center of the hub where it's not so turbulent. If you live on the extremes, you're going to have a more exciting time and a lot more upheaval. Nothing wrong with that. Just remember that the wolf that wins is the one you feed. And if you bring others down with you on that ride, you have to carry the burden of that. In my experience, that's what karma is about. It's not some god in the sky judging us. It's us living with our own conscience. Power is balanced by responsibility. To be at the center of that means that I don't use my power to dominate others, but to help them. I don't take more than I need so others can survive and enjoy things too. So the meaning of evil is that when it shows up, we're way off balance. One of my go-to things I ask myself in every situation is what does this say about me or what does this mean for me? If I do that, then everything has a meaning and nothing is more depressing than not having any meaning. When I look at Jeffrey Dahmer, it says that creating opportunities for people to connect remains a priority for me. Helping people who feel lonely and isolated is important to me. I want to reflect that all people have value so that this can be averted in the future. I want to live in a world like Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, in October 2006. A milk truck driver pulls up to the one-room schoolhouse and goes inside. And after letting adults and the boys go, he lines up ten little girls in front of the chalkboard and shoots them all before he shoots himself. And what happens next is astounding. The shooter's family wants to leave the community, but the Amish asks them to stay. And one Amish man consoled the shooter's father for over an hour while he cried. They all immediately, publicly, offered forgiveness for the shooter. Some even went to the shooter's funeral. This was after losing five of their own children to this man. I know that that went a long way in healing the damage that was caused by one person who was upset with God that his daughter died 10 years before, shortly after being born. That forgiveness changed the whole story and the energy around it. We have a choice. On how to respond to the undesirable things that happen to us? If we fight it, hold on to resentment and fuel it, the evil wolf wins. If we remember the love and the light inside and accept and forgive, we return to the balanced center. We can learn something about compassion and letting go from Jeffrey Dahmer in all of life. We don't have to wait for the extreme things or the horrible things. We can see it in the sunshine or the birds flying overhead. Just look for it. Everything is whole and one. You see what you look for. So see the love. And think about where you wanna draw the line. If evil is cultural, then standards differ from place to place. In some areas, it's totally okay to buy a 10-year-old girl as a bride. I draw my line at sovereignty and respecting personal boundaries, not at what's culturally acceptable. So if the person is of age, and of sound mind, and agrees to whatever proposal I have, and it harms no one in the long-term or short-term, including the environment and any peripheral players, I feel good about my choices. So thank you all for listening this week. Please support the show by reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, and keep on letting go. See you next week. Ciao.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help the podcast thrive, Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from Laura Giles, you can follow her on all her socials at LauraGiles804. See you next time.